I'd love to open up Philippians 1 to you guys, and also we'll just read Psalm 16. We're not really going to uh, refer there, except one, just one verse we're interested in. Um, Philippians 1 begins in this way. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Psalm 16. It's the psalm of David, but I think it is right to understand this as a prophetic psalm, as one that's really on the lips of Jesus, and um, it becomes clearer towards the end that it speaks in a kind of vague way, but an opaque way, but um, nevertheless it becomes clear in the New Testament that it's speaking about the resurrection of Jesus, but it goes like this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's that one verse right at the start. It says, as for the saints, as for the Holy Ones in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We, um, the reason we're doing this series, so we began last week a new series in the book of Philippians, and I think we're going to be here a little while because it's such a rich, rich book. The reason why it's a compelling book for us really comes down to two things. And on the one hand, this is a book that, um, as I told you last week, is probably the happiest book in the Bible. Um, it's full of rejoicing. And in the midst of a lot of hardship, and there's this, this powerful note of joy that runs through it, of happiness in Paul, and of his desire that the Philippian people also be, be happy as Christians. And uh, I, I think there's a, a, a desperate need for the recovery of joy in the church at large. And a lot of people do not associate Christianity with happiness. And obviously that's where something has gone wrong in terms of our experience, if that is not true for you and for me. The other reason why this is such a powerful and compelling book is because of this, all the way through the letter, Paul speaks in a way of self-denial and emptying of himself in preference for the pursuit of Christ and his glory. I think of the context we're in of nothing but self-aggrandizement and the desire to put yourself ahead. And I also see my own observation that the church of Jesus in the West does not seem 
to take seriously the call towards self-denial in the cause of Christ. And here's the crucial thing you must understand. I think these two things are connected throughout this letter. That Paul's emptying of himself for the sake of Jesus is also the reason why he is so happy. If you are someone who struggles to find joy in the Christian life, is it because you have not lived or are not living a life of abandon for the cause of, of Jesus and for his service? This is what I find so powerful and compelling in this letter, and I think what will make a deep impression on our minds and our hearts as we work our way through it. It's life-changing. It really is. Now, we, t- we focused last week on just one word at the beginning, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And the emphasis there was on their giving of themselves for the cause of Jesus, as I've just been mentioning. Today, I want us to move our attention to another word. And uh, I promise you, we're not going to take this one word at a time. <laughs> we would be here an extremely long time if we did that. But I think it's so vital, so important, um, that it's worthy of our time and consideration this morning. So the thing you must grasp as we start this, this message is that it's not only the emphasis of the Bible, what you can give for Jesus as his servant, but more important still, underlying and as a foundation to Paul's desire to give himself to Christ, is this emphasis of who he is in Christ, of his privileges, of what he feels is, is, is his privilege as a son, and particularly, as the word is here, as a saint. And this is why I want us to spend our time and, and, and direct our attention this morning. Because Paul writes, he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And it's the kind of phrase which you can overlook and smooth over in your mind, but which, when you grasp what he has, is saying about you as a believer in Christ, is utterly life-changing and transforming. Yes, we're called to service. Yes, we're called to devotion. Yes, we're called to give our lives to Jesus as servants. But more important still, more fundamental, more foundational to who you are as a person, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, is what he says about you here, that you are a saint. We need to know who we are. We need to know what is ours as believers in Jesus. And that will change the entire trajectory of your life and of your experience of what it means to be a Christian. It's a very loaded word. It means holy ones. It means people who are set apart. It means people who are, in God's mind, marked not for their dirtiness, but for their cleanness, for their specialness, for their, the fact that they are a treasured possession in his sight. I wonder if that's a way that you feel when you approach God in prayer. I wonder if that's a controlling way you think about your spirituality. Why is this so important? Let me begin by saying this. Being a saint is important because of what it excludes in terms of other ways of thinking about yourself. The fact that Paul calls you and calls the Philippian Christians and that the New Testament repeatedly and and vehemently describes you as saints excludes other ways of thinking about yourself. What do I mean? What ways might you think about yourself? The first is this. It excludes the option of describing yourself as a sinner. 
Now, that might strike you as an odd thing to say, but I think that the fact that Paul addresses them as saints and, in fact, that the entirety of the New Testament leans in that direction. He keeps, the New Testament always calls believers saints. It's the most common description of a Christian, way more common than the word Christian, in fact, is this word saint. It's not an accidental thing. The New Testament wants to tell you this is who and what you are. You are a saint. You are a holy one. So what about sin then? Yes, we sin. You and I know that we look at our own lives and hearts and we feel something of the the disappointment, the things that we have said, done, thought, felt, desired, pursued, acted upon. Yes, we sin. Later in the New Testament, in 1 John, he puts this very clearly when he says in 1 John 1 verse 8, he says that if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you think that you are somebody who is without sin, you're a liar. The Bible is emphatic upon this point. Every one of us uh, has sin in our lives, and things that we are repenting of, and things that we are dealing with, and things that we are turning from, and that we are wanting to bury and and to be atoned by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, that assumption is even there, even in the way Paul's writing to the Philippians, because he says things like this in Philippians 1. We read it. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul's obviously working from the assumption that these Christians, even though he calls them saints, are not complete. They're not perfect. You might, you might look around and see other believers and think, well, they're, they're pretty much perfect, unlike me. But the assumption is, no, you're all being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You're not what you were, you're not what you will be, but you're somewhere in the middle. So your life isn't perfect, but having said that, the sense is that you, your sense of self, your sense of who you are before God, should not primarily be to describe yourself in the language of being a sinner. And that might strike you as an odd thing to say because it's very common for Christians to, to speak in this way. and to, to, Even in the way we worship, that, that's what comes out of our lips. We're nothing and we, we, we approach you as sinners and we and absolutely understand, obviously we want to keep the emphasis of repentance and of wanting to acknowledge our unworthiness before God. But it matters the language we use about ourselves. It matters how we understand ourselves. And the New Testament does not to my knowledge, ever call Christians sinners. This is why I think it's important for you as a believer, if you are a Christian, as far as possible to not take upon yourselves these kinds of labels which actually shape the way you think about yourself. We describe ourselves sometimes as feeling or being wretched, of being addicted you just say, I'm, I'm so rubbish. You may have even said that you hate yourself. I think it's important that a Christian, even if you are rightly acknowledging and bringing your sin to God in repentance, this, the fact that you are a saint excludes that from becoming the defining way you think about yourself as a sinner. I hope that makes sense to you. In a way, you could think of it like this. You know that there's... A lot of Ferrari these days about this whole phenomenon they call cultural appropriation. So the idea is um, 
just because you like Mexican food doesn't mean that you can go around wearing a sombrero. And there's a lot of sort of controversy around the idea that people dressing up in, in other cultural heritage clothing or adopting ways of speaking and all these kinds of things to the point where it's become actually uh, non-politically correct to do so. Now, whatever you think about that as a phenomenon, and I'm not really wanting to make a comment on it today, I'll land myself in all kinds of controversy on my birthday, which is not a good idea. <laughs> whatever you want to think about that, in a way, that's kind of what we're saying here. That to, to take upon yourself the description where you say, I'm a sinner, I'm wretched, I'm rubbish, is cultural appropriation. It's appropriating your old life before you came to know Jesus. And you might look at yourself and think, I've not changed that much. And that may be true to a certain degree, except that something profound has changed in your status. God has made you a saint. He has made you a holy one. He has made you someone who is part of his, his beloved people. It excludes that. Here's another thing that it excludes. It means you cannot think in terms of grades or classes of Christians. Now, you'd expect, if, you know, our, our first ex- expectation of the way Paul ought to be writing when he writes to the Philippians is he, he should say, from St. Paul to the Christians or to the people who are in Philippi, right? Because we've come to think in terms of the strata in the spiritual life, that there are people who are saints and then there are people who are kind of godly and on the road towards sainthood and then there's the rest of us who don't really have much hope but we're just about Christians. And you have to realize that this is a complete misunderstanding of the way the New Testament thinks about spirituality. Do you know that in the New Testament... It's always ordinary Christians who are called saints and never an individual. No one is ever picked out and called a saint above and in distinction from other people. Not even once. And we've become confused mainly because of the historic teaching of, of uh, the church and particularly of the Catholic Church on this issue. And I understand that in the Catholic Church that people can be on a road towards sainthood and there are actually explicit progressions for people towards that that kind of uh, canonization, they call it. It starts with being called a servant of God as a kind of technical term. Someone can be named a servant of God. Then it moves to them being heroic in virtue. Then it moves to them being recognized as blessed. And finally, somebody can be called a saint. That happened, didn't it, for Mother Teresa not so long ago, but after her death, that eventually she was recognized as a saint. So then things have to be true of you. You have to be recognized for your particular holiness or for your impact on other people and for having miracles associated with you. And eventually, if you become a saint, then ordinary believers can pray to you in the Mass, um, which is obviously something very foreign to the New Testament and to the Bible. And I, I don't want to only say that it's foreign. I think that this whole idea is, is profoundly dangerous. Is at the root of why so many people struggle with an insecurity in their faith, with a sense of not belonging and of not being loved and treasured as God's precious possession. Because you think, I'm this kind of Christian, and then there are those kinds of Christians who are so much above me, so much higher than me, so much different from me. And in fact, our language even recognizes that because they're called saints, and I don't know what I'm called, but it definitely isn't that. 
You may have this, even, you know, even if you wouldn't use that kind of language, you may have this just implicit in the way you think about yourself, even as you've come today to church. That in your head, as you look around the room, without necessarily even being conscious of it, you kind of have a little ranking system going on. You know that some people in this church are, seem to be particularly godly. Maybe not saints, but they're getting there. And then there's others who you think, well, they're really, really struggling. And I'm somewhere there in the middle, maybe. Or maybe you think you're one of the ones who's really struggling. But to put yourself on a kind of ranking system can only ever produce either pride on the one hand, when you glorify how well you're doing, or a, a, a false kind of humility and self-abasement on the other hand, when you feel rubbish about yourself because you've had a bad week or a bad day or you're feeling particularly condemned. And you've got to realize that when... You know, when Paul writes to this church, it's really interesting how he says it's from the servant, these servants, Paul and Timothy, to all the saints in Christ Jesus with the overseers and the deacons. He doesn't even separate out the leaders of the church for particular mention before he mentions the Christians. He says, no, the first thing about you all is that you are saints, and then there's also the elders and the deacons of the church, the people who occupy the offices in the church. Can you see how, how important this is? That for him, the first thing about you, the most important thing about you, is that you are a saint. Which means that Christianity is probably the most egalitarian faith in the world, in this sense. That there are no distinctions in sainthood before God. You are treasured. You are loved. A third thing that it excludes is that it means you can no longer identify primarily by your kind of natural circumstances and state. I think it's very significant here that when Paul writes to them, he doesn't just write to the Philippians. He says to the saints in Philippi, which is to say, it's a subtle but important difference, which is to say he's not primarily interested in what they are by nature, Philippian people. He's way more interested in what they are by grace, by God's power, by the transforming power of God, which is that they are saints. If you identify primarily by nature that your race is important to you, your, your status is important to you, your work is important to you, your, kind of, um, your place in society, your intelligence, your education, these things are important to you, or reasons for embarrassment, reasons to feel less about yourself, Reasons to feel like you don't belong among certain groups of people. None of that matters in the church. We read the story last week of how the church in Philippi was founded. The first person that came to faith was one of the wealthiest people probably in town. The second person was a slave. And then the third was somewhere in the middle, kind of a middle-class family, a guy who works in the jail and probably earned a decent salary. And it didn't matter where they came from, they were all of different ethnicities. One of them was from Asia, one of them was from, probably from Greece, and the other's from Rome. And none of these things matter because when you come into the church, the first thing about you, the most important thing about you, is that you are a saint. You even have permission to think of yourself in that language, in those, that terminology, before anything else is true of you. When that sinks in, it's going to alter your sense of self-worth. Not because you look in the mirror every morning and say, you are great, you are special. You know, in that kind of way where we, 
we big ourselves up based on our own, you know, by these psychological tricks, but because we recognize that God himself has called us saints. He's given us this distinction. He's made us his own. He calls us holy and beloved. That's the first thing. That being a saint excludes other ways of thinking and speaking about yourself. Now here's the second where it leads on to. When you understand this reality of being a saint, it changes all of your relationships. Now, to become a saint in God's kingdom is first of all a change in status. And we understand what the New Testament says about us. It came out in the passage which Naomi read during the worship. That first of all, it's a change in status that we go from death to life. We go from exclusion, being outside of the family of God, to belonging, to becoming part of his people. We go from a sense of unworthiness to a sense of acceptance and confidence and the ability to approach the throne of God, knowing that we're accepted before him. And all of this speaks of a change in status. You were that, you're now that. But that change in status ought to then affect every dimension of your life. And in particular, your relationships towards other people. When that sinks in, it begins to alter everything, your sense of place in the world, the sense of how you relate to other people around you and towards God. And that's what I want us to tease out. Firstly, it changes your relationship towards God. Now, that couldn't be true if, if I chose this title for myself. If I said, I'm now St. Andrew, that wouldn't change anything in terms of my relationship to God, would it? If I arrogated that, that, that sense of self-understanding for myself. But the vital thing to grasp here is that being a saint is something that God decides, that God gives, that God alone can confer upon a person. Sainthood isn't something you choose, in other words. It's something that is chosen for you by God and his, his, his choice. Even before you were born, he chose you in Christ, it says in Ephesians 1. Which is a profoundly liberating way of understanding your relationship with God because it means it has nothing to do with your worthiness, your performance. It has nothing to do with your feelings, even. It means you can't improve on that, and it means you can't take away from that. It's an entirely gracious gift of God to you. He calls you saint. So if God has decided to relate to you as a chosen one, as a holy one, as someone who now belongs and is accepted in his presence, you don't even have a right to deny that. I know that as a Christian, one of the greatest battles that we struggle with in day-to-day life is a sense of, of unworthiness, of, and of, sometimes of that sense of condemnation. But when God has said this about you, when he has made the decision and he calls you his saint, there's nothing that you can do to change the way that he looks at you. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. It is who you are. This is why I wanted you to hear that verse in Psalm 16. It says these As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. 
don't know if that has begun to control how you feel about yourself before God. Do you feel his delight on your, on your life? Do you feel his pleasure? Do you feel that to come to him as a child, as a son, as the New Testament calls you, he wants to know you and to be intimate with you to have, and for you to experience his fatherly love? Because this is the message of what Psalm 16 is saying. The saints who are in the land, they are the holy ones in whom is all my delight. This is Christ speaking of his people. He takes pleasure in us. You may not feel lovely, but Jesus says that you are lovely to him. He thinks of you as precious and as special. It means that your feelings become irrelevant how you feel about yourself. Long before there was any kind of understanding of psychology, of psychiatry, the Bible was speaking to these issues, changing people's understanding of their, their self-worth because to be loved by God, to experience His pleasure and His smile upon you, is the most life-changing thing that can ever happen to a person. It changes your relationship with God. Here's the second thing. It changes your relationship even to yourself. Now, I find this very interesting because I think in a sense it does speak to our kind of psychological health and well-being, if I can put it in that kind of language. Now, many people when they think about religion, and this is one of the things that religion is most critiqued for, they say that it, it makes people more anxious and more bound up. And that the way to be free from all of that is to shun religion because it puts upon you all this guilt and all this condemnation and all of this sense of unworthiness. Now, to a degree, I want to agree with that. I want to say, yes, absolutely. That's exactly what religions can do to people. They can make people feel bound up. They can make people feel burdened. When you start to come to the belief that there is a God out there who is holy, and then you look at yourself honestly, and you realize that your life has not exactly matched up with the way that he calls you to live, you rightly start to feel a sense of burden, a sense of guilt. A lot of people feel this long before they even acknowledge that there is a God. There is a kind of a universal sense of feeling guilty in, in human hearts. And we can bury it and we can push it down. And it's like trying to push a float underneath the water in the swimming pool. This thing is going to come back up and going to haunt you. Sometimes that becomes more acute as the years go on. It can become because of one thing that you did that you can never forgive yourself for. Or just because the accumulated sense of my life being unworthy. And when you throw in dogma and doctrine and beliefs about a God out there and the holiness of that God, that can crush people under the weight of feeling utterly unacceptable. Jesus described that. He described people being tied up with burdens too hard to bear. And so I want to be the first one to put my hand up and acknowledge that it's exactly what religion can do to you. 
Religion can crush you. It can destroy you. It can utterly take away your sense of, of well-being and, and health in your mind. And it leads us to the question, well, what place does all of that have in the Christian life then? That sense of, of guilt. And the New Testament is very clear on this, friends. That there is a place for sorrow. There is a place for mourning. But that it is the road towards the opposite experience of, of God. Jesus was clear on this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In other words, you're most blessed when you experience the most profound and deep sorrow on account of your nature and, who, and what you've done and what you've become, because you will have the opportunity to experience the deepest kind of joy and happiness. What he describes here is comfort. In fact, I'd say that there's absolutely no way you can come to know joy if it's not through first that kind of sorrow, that recognition that God is holy, that he demands holiness, and that you fall far short. But for us who have come to know Jesus, the one who takes that burden off your shoulders, the one who takes that burden upon himself when he went to the cross for you, for us who have come into that saving relationship with Jesus, there is something deeply wrong if you live in a perpetual sense of grief or of mourning or of condemnation or of self-loathing. I know that we're touching on areas that in some of your hearts are very sensitive and difficult to speak about. the longer that you're a pastor, the more you realize that there are people who struggle to even come in the doors on Sunday because of these very things. Because of how you regard your own life. And sometimes it's because of ongoing struggles with stuff you wish you were free from. Wish you could say was in the past. And often it's just because there is this voice in your mind condemning you, pulling you down. To know that you are called a saint is to proactively, deliberately, self-consciously and willfully decide before God that you will believe what the Bible says about you rather than these feelings that you've been struggling with. If anyone in the New Testament had a reason to feel rubbish about himself, it was Paul. He says in another one of the letters that he had been that he was the worst of sinners. He could look back on his past and know that he, he was the last person on earth who should have become a Christian. But he also speaks about himself with a lightness and a freedom. Even in this letter, he talks about forgetting what lies behind. And he gives us permission to forget what lies behind. The things you've done, the things that you are, you've grieved over, the things that you've repented from. He says, it's okay, you can forget them. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 4. When he says, he says, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words, I don't really care what men think about me. And then he says something even more profound and striking. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. 
there's a sense in which Paul, I think there's a place for introspection in the Christian life. There's a place for looking inwards and saying, what is there in my life that I need to be rid of? I need to repent from, I need to, get, I need to deal with, I need to confess to others, and I need to confess to God. There's a place for that. But there is something profoundly unhealthy in Christians who sit in that puddle, always looking inwards at what's going on in your own spiritual life. And so that your whole emotional life is controlled by the way you perceive your own walk with God. And Paul says, you know what? I don't even judge myself. I don't stand like the judge with his gavel, condemning myself, saying that I'm unworthy, saying that I'm bad, saying that there's things that I ought to be ashamed of. He says, I trust God entirely to deal with that. He walked through life with a clear conscience. I'm sure that it meant that he had to keep short accounts with God because Paul was not free from sin any more than you're right because then that would be to fall into that trap of making these gradations that he was St. Paul and we're just rubbish me and you. No. I do not even judge myself, he says. When you understand that you're a saint, in other words, it changes your relationship to yourself. It's the third thing it changes. It changes your relationship to the church. What will it do to our fellowship when we begin to look at one another as saints in Jesus Christ? It means that on the one hand, we cannot ever feel a sense of superiority to other people in this room. As though you could be more acceptable or better than others. Because you look around at your brothers and sisters here and you say, you, you're all saints. On the other hand, it means you can never walk in here and feel inferior either. You have permission to refuse that. I don't want you to come in here with a sense of insecurity among God's family. Ever. You belong. There's no sense in which you're lesser. There's no sense in which you are to be excluded. The only time that happens is when somebody lives in deliberate pursuit of sin instead of pursuit of Jesus. When they've made that decision in their heart, they want to cherish sin. But that isn't true of you, is it? You hate your sin. You hate it. You want to be free of it. You want to walk away from it. It means that there are no spiritual elites in here. It's striking that always, when the New Testament addresses Christians as saints, it always speaks in the plural, the collective. It never speaks about an individual, as I said earlier. It always talks to us all and says, you're just saints. There are no spiritual elites in here. I'm the last who would ever claim that for myself. And here's the final way in which it changes your relationships. It changes your relationships to the world also. In fact, it's almost part of the very definition of what it means to be a saint. If you know anything of your kind of um, your your Old Testament and the background to this term, the language is holy ones. And if you know what that word holy means, it means set apart. It's a word that first and foremost was used always to describe God in his distinction from us. That there is the creation that God made, and then there's God who is holy. 
transcendent, other, perfect. To even look upon his perfection and purity with unfiltered gaze is to invite death because no one can look at God and live. And it has to do with this, the aspect of his absolute distinction from us, his holiness, his otherness. But what does that then imply when God starts calling his people holy? It implies that when he looks at the world and sees among mankind people who are his own, that they are in some ways, in his perception, different from everyone else in this world. Remember, this difference is not to do with you being better than anyone else. It's not to do with you being more worthy than anyone else, and it has absolutely nothing to do with anything natural in you in terms of your background or race or any other such thing. It has everything to do with God's choice, his calling of you to be his saint, his holy one. But here's a crucial thing I want you to understand, that it is by definition of the term a distinction from the world. To be a holy one is to be distinct. There was a sermon that Martin Lloyd-Jones preached to his church um, on this whole theme of being saints. And he put it in a really striking way. And I love this. Listen carefully. He says, to me, every Christian is an exceptional man. At least, if a man is not exceptional man, then he cannot possibly be a true Christian. I don't know if you look at yourself and think, I am exceptional. <laughs> For remember, he says, a Christian is one, you listen, who believes in the death of Christ and the resurrection. One who's been born again is a new creation, has become a son of God, and is therefore a brother of Christ. Now, if those things don't make you exceptional, I have no idea what does. You believe things that the world doesn't believe, and things have become true of you that are not true of the world. That Jesus has called you now his brothers, his sisters. He's taken you from death to life. He's given you eternal security. And then he goes on. He says, if you do not stand out on your street and in your neighborhood as an exceptional person, I tell you seriously that you cannot possibly be a Christian. I don't mean by that that you should adopt attitudes and pose before your fellow men because that would be hypocrisy. So we don't go around wearing Christian clothes or dressing, you know, presenting ourselves as Christian or praying on street corners or whatever else. None of that, he says. What I do mean is this, that the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you makes such a difference to you that you become so completely changed from your former self that all those around you cannot help noticing the difference. In other words... To be a saint entails both a negative thing and a positive thing. Negatively, it means that you, there's a kind of a moral dimension to this, that there has been a transformation in your life. You might not even be able to see it yourself, but others can see it. Christ is at work in you. He's changing you. He's calling you out, making you different, making you a holy one. But it also means something positive, that your life is now You are here on this earth to live a life of consecration. To be consecrated to God comes from the exact same root of being a holy one for for his service. I love this word consecration. It speaks of the death of your old ambitions and dreams and desires and everything else you're living for and the decision 
the choice of your will, I am living for God from this day on. To be called a saint is to say, Lord, I am continually wanting to surrender my heart to you. And you don't have to make that choice in order to become a saint, but rather that because you're a saint, God is consecrating you to himself continually. You belong to him and you have a purpose in his will. Now, of course, this means that there is a huge difference in the way you relate to the world now. We are in this world, but we know that we're not part of it. It means, in other words, that it's okay to be different. I don't know if you feel that that is true of you. You may feel, a lot of Christians feel a compulsion to feel like they belong. And that they belong among the group of friends that they have or the the workplace they're in. They want to feel like they're part of things. We all do. It's human nature. But the Bible says, no, you're different. You're a saint. You're a holy one. You do belong, but you belong to my people. Which means it's okay to, to miss out on stuff that other people are enjoying. Because God has better pleasures for you. You'll never really miss out. Because behind the illusion of what looks like such a fun time is the heartache and the brokenness that always follows. It means it's okay to feel like an outsider. I think if Christians were more conscious of this, the church would stand out a little bit more. I think one of the diseases of the church in this century has has been the desire to feel like we're a part of this system. It's why we trip over ourselves to, to be more liberal than the world, to be more accepting of all kinds of things that the Bible is clear on, lifestyles and choices that people make. It's why we always feel this desire to, to hold positions of power in the systems of this country. And, and we, we fear more than anything that people will point at us and describe us as being closed-minded or, or holier-than-thou or something like that. That's why Christians are bending over backward to not be different from the world around us. At what point does the church then become pointless? At what point does the church become a completely useless organization? If all you're going to hear when you go to church is an echo of everything that the world believes about life and what's important in life, then why would you bother? But to be called a saint, to be called a holy one, is to be called out. It involves a deep, profound self-renunciation of things that you once thought were important, you once thought were precious, you once thought were the right way to live, in preference for Christ and his will. You ask, well, why not produce that kind of attitude in us when we become holier than thou? But remember how Paul puts it here. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. We're not saints because of what we've done or because of our attitude or because of our choices. We're saints because of him. It's all him. His achievements, his life, 
His death, which was for you, his resurrection was for you, and his calling of you to be part of his kingdom. That's what makes you a saint. It's got nothing to do with our attitude towards the world and everything to do with Christ's attitude towards us. Matthew Henry put it like this. He says, saints are accepted only by virtue of their being in Christ Jesus or as they are Christians, out of Christ, the best saints will appear sinners and unable to stand before God. Friends, I want to close just by saying one last thing, a final implication that comes out of this this understanding that you are a saint. That it's not just a kind of objective, cold truth about you. It's not just something where you just grit your teeth and say, well, this is what the Bible says about me. I'm a saint. Even if you don't feel it, but rather this is a reality that needs to be felt at the deepest part of your experience of the Christian life. In many ways, it should be one of the most formative aspects of your understanding of who you are. You understand this and you grasp this, it should change your entire experience of life. What I mean is that it, there are certain feelings that you, you should not be living with. That you should not, as I've said already, be living with a perpetual sense of guilt and shame. That you should not be someone who lives in fear either because fear is born out of insecurity, out of uncertainty. And if there's one thing that's true of you as a saint is that you actually belong and that there is no uncertainty about you or your future. And instead, this is why I think Paul can write to you as a Christian, to to me and say, to all the saints, and then verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You should be able to feel the grace of God. You should be able to feel the peace of God. His grace can also be translated as his favor. Do you know that God is favorable towards you? You know the difference, don't you, in life between somebody who's in authority over you, whether they're favorable or not. If they're favorable, you feel the warmth, don't you? the glow of their smile and of their acceptance and of their affirmation. And if they're not, if you approach them with trepidation or annoyance or you can think of parents or of bosses in your life who've had that influence upon you, for good or bad. When Paul says here, grace to you, he's saying your experience of being a Christian should be one of God's favor, of his love of walking under the sunshine of his delight. And not just grace, but also peace, which is probably the most complete word that describes what the Bible says we ought to experience in life. Because it speaks of entire well-being. Things being set straight in your head and your heart. All the negativity and anxiety being shunned in favor of this peace that's with God that's with yourself, that's with others. And the Bible wants to bless a person that speaks the word peace into that person's life. And this is what Christ has given to us, peace, peace with God, peace with one another. Friends, if you do not feel these things, if this is not your experience, I want to pray for you today. I want us to I want to invite you, we're going to, what I'm going to do is we're going to take communion together and then we're going to ask anyone who just feels like, I, I need to experience this. This is not, 
how I experience the Christian life with grace and peace. Is that something that you can put your hand up and say, I'm struggling in this way. I want you to just find your way over here in the last song when we sing before the throne. And I've asked some of the guys to come and pray. And we're just going to pray with you. There's, no, there's nothing magic going on by stepping over there. But there's an opportunity to experience the love of other brothers and sisters in Christ as we come before God and say, Lord, I want to change the way I think and feel about myself before you. Can we pray now briefly and then I'll, I'll lead us in how we're going to go from here. Well, Jesus, we, um, we love you and are so thankful that this gospel, the good news of your death on the cross for us to make us acceptable and take away our sin and allow it to be punished once and for all for all time. Thank you that it means we can breathe again. Thank you that it means that we can know total peace in the depths of our souls. I see a clamoring desire in this world to experience peace. Some people think that they'll get it by working harder and attaining more. Other people think they'll get it by switching off and tuning out for 20 minutes a day in meditation. Others think they'll get it through extreme sports and through extreme pleasure-seeking. But Lord, we're all basically craving the same thing. We thank you that when we come to know you, it's ours. Lord, I pray that where, Lord, people need to be rewired today, you'll start to do that deep heart work in our lives. Rewiring and transforming how we understand ourselves. That we belong to you and nothing can change that. I pray for anyone here who actually knows that they are not yet a Christian. That they couldn't really put their hand up and say, I belong. Because they've never laid their life down for you. They've never repented of sin. They've never acknowledged Jesus as a Savior. I pray, Lord, that you'll begin in their heart even right now such a craving desire to be part of your people and to be loved by you in this way, to experience your love in this way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.